I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? I can see it in your eyes. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! What truth? You say you that you are a slave, Neo. Trying to understand this! 20-year-olds fall in and out of love more often than they change their oil filters, which they should do more often. I didn't see the light until I was already a man. You have to let it all go, Neo. Fear, doubt, disbelief. Free your mind. It doesn't matter who we are. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. How do you define real? You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. After this, there is no turning back. Are we clear? Crystal. man was polishing his brand new car his six-year-old son picked up a stone and scratched some lines onto the side of the car in anger the man took the child's hand and struck it multiple times yelling no the man was so angry that he did not realize he was holding a wrench and hitting his son's hand with it at the hospital the child lost all of his fingers due to multiple fractures when the child saw his father with painful, tear-filled eyes, he asked, Daddy, when will my fingers grow back? The man was so hurt and speechless that he went back to his car and kicked it so hard that he caused multiple dents and dings on the car. Realizing he had caused even more damage than his son, which sparked such anger, he sat there, devastated by his own actions. Sitting in front of that beloved brand new car, looking at the dents and dings, he saw for the first time what his little boy had actually done. He saw in the scratches that his son had used a rock to carve a message into the paint. Three little words. Love you, Daddy. The next day, the man committed suicide. Anger and love have no limits. Choose the latter to have a beautiful, lovely life. Things are to be used and people are to be loved. But the problem in today's world is that people are used and things are loved. Let's be careful to keep this thought in mind. Things are to be used, but people are to be loved. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it will become your destiny. Welcome to Third Degree Mind. Thanks for being here today. I like that little story. Uh, it really does a good job to drive the point home that sometimes we have so much love for our possessions and our things that we forget about what really matters in life. And that's kind of the moral of that story. So I want you to always keep that in mind when you become angry with someone.
Anyways, it's been a few weeks since uh, we've been around, but we're back today, and I thank you for listening to this episode. Over the last few weeks, I went home to Wisconsin to see my family. That was a good time, just as always. And I'm fly- I'm sitting on the plane, and I'm always thinking, I, I, li- I like to people watch, and I was thinking about how people on airplanes, I, I feel like we just, we see a lot of, uh, we, we see a variety of human stupidity. You know, everybody always, at the end of the flight, when you get back to the gate and everybody like, the second that seatbelt sign turns off, everybody jumps up to their feet and is grabbing their bags and ready to get off the plane. And, and I get it because I hate sitting on a plane too. So I, I get that everybody's in a hurry, but have these people never flown before? Do they not realize that you're going to be standing there for a few minutes? There's nowhere to go yet just because the seatbelt sign is off and we're now parked at the gate. There's there's still nowhere to go. You have to sit there and, and wait, especially if you're in the back of the plane. You're waiting for everybody to get off first, and it's just it's just crazy to me that uh, that people, people do that type of thing. Uh, I wrote something on my personal Facebook page that, you know, I just want to be on one flight where we don't have to witness the stupidity of humanity. Uh, I want to be on one flight where, A, nobody stands up while the seatbelt sign is still on, or like, you know, in this sense, as soon as that seatbelt sign turns off, everybody jumps to their feet like they're anxious to get off the plane. Or B, nobody presses the call button above their seat thinking it's the reading lamp button. Have you ever noticed that? You know, you're sitting on the plane mid-flight and you hear that you hear that dinging from somewhere and you might kind of look around and see what that was or what, what's going on. And basically what that dinging is, is it's it's the, the tone for the flight attendants to know that somebody hit the call button that's above their seat, you know, on the ceiling where the air vents and the lights are. There's two buttons above the seats. One one button controls that reading light, and the other button controls the uh, it's the call button to to call the flight attendant if you, if you need something. And every single flight that I've ever been on, somebody confuses those buttons and hits the call button when they're all they're trying to do is turn on their reading light. And I think this is an example of human stupidity because these these two little buttons there's two buttons that are clearly labeled you know one is a picture of a light it's a picture of a light bulb clearly being turned on and the other picture is a picture of a a flight attendant holding a a, like a tray or a tray of uh, drinks or food items or something like that and I I feel like these little little symbols are pretty self-explanatory, but yet there's always multiple people on every flight that uh, confuse those buttons, and I I to this day I have no idea how that happens. Uh, or or you know I want to be on a flight where one of these two things doesn't happen. Or C I wrote uh, if I can't have those other if I can't be on a flight with that I really want to see a frustrated flight attendant that deals with this kind of stuff all the time. I want to see a frustrated flight attendant just completely blow a gasket and like scream at someone. I just think that would be hilarious. I don't know why, but I just think that'd be so funny because they are constantly on these flights babysitting people and uh, (laughs) dealing with a a bunch of morons. Like if I was a flight attendant, I feel like I'd get so irritated with people confusing those buttons. And when I give my little safety brief in the beginning of the flight, I'd probably say something like, hey, by the way, if you're going to push one of those buttons above your head, if you're looking for your reading light, you need to realize there's actually two buttons there and you need to look at the little icon and make sure you're pushing the right one. One of them will call the flight attendant, and one of them will turn your light on. Look at the icons, and you can figure out which is which before you go pressing buttons on the airplane. 
I would say something like that. And I think I, I think over time of dealing with that on every single flight, multiple times a day, and for weeks on end, months on end, years, if you've been a flight attendant for a while, I just feel like at some point, a flight attendant has got to just lose their mind and completely scream at someone after having to deal with that all the time. And and I I've never seen that. And kudos to them for being able to control that frustration and just kind of deal with it and tell people, oh, it's okay. This is your reading lamp button here. Like I just I don't know. I just think it's funny. Or the people that constantly, you know, on this flight I was on, somebody got up. Uh, it, he was a couple rows in front of me, and we were hitting a little, just a little bit of turbulence, and uh, the seatbelt sign was on. And this guy stands up to grab something out of the overhead bin, and uh, he just kind of stands there you know, stretching his leg, whatever. He's stand, standing in the aisle. And a couple flight attendants kind of walk by him and, you know, he has to move out of their way because the aisle's so narrow. <clears throat> and I was wait, I was watching and I'm waiting for one of these flight attendants to tell him, you know, the seatbelt sign is on, sir. You need to, you need to have a seat. But nobody ever did. And eventually, you know, they make the announcement over the over the PA system in there for the cabin, they make the announcement, hey, just a reminder, seatbelt sign is on. If you're out and about, you know, we need you to return to your seats and sit down and put your seatbelts back on. And the guy just stood there like he didn't even hear the announcement. He may not have. I don't know if he had headphones in, whatever. He just kind of stood there. And again, multiple flight attendants walking by. Nobody ever once told him to sit down. And I just thought that was funny. Like, I feel like that would just drive me insane if I was a flight attendant and had to deal with that, like, it's really not that hard. And and I, I posted that on my Facebook page. And one of my friends uh, responded back uh, something about, well, you know, if someone has some type of medical condition, and they, they have to use the bathroom or whatever, I'd, I'd rather have them get up when the seatbelt sign is on, and go to the bathroom as opposed to having them, you know, shit their pants right there next to me. Uh, and <laughs> I do agree with that. Like, yeah, if you if you got to go, you got to go. And you're, you're a grown man. You're not going to be told to not go to the bathroom because you have to go to the bathroom or whatever. And if it's just mild turbulence or whatever, and it's not like takeoff or landing, then yeah, of course, you're going to you're, you're going to get up and, and go to the bathroom. But I thought it was funny, you know, when you have people that aren't going to the bathroom, and they're just standing there for the purpose of stretching their legs, because they don't feel like sitting. And uh, they just never get yelled at. Or you have those people that just have to stand up and grab something out of their bag, out of the overhead bin. Like they can't wait for that, uh, for that seatbelt sign to turn off. And same thing. I just, I, I really think it'd be, I, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe you agree with me. I just think it would be hilarious to see a flight attendant just completely lose their mind on someone and yell at them about the seatbelt sign being on. And what do you need to be out of your seat for right now? Follow the damn sign and sit your ass in your seat. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I would love for that to happen. If I can't have a flight without morons, then I want to have a flight with a flight attendant yelling at one of the, one of the said morons. Another thing that kind of bothers me is I flew Southwest. And of course, if you've ever flown Southwest, you know that they don't assign seats. It's an open seating and you get based on your check-in and based on how much money you give them, you get a boarding position and if you're first on the plane, then you choose where you sit. And if you're last on the plane, you get what's left, essentially. And that can be good or bad. It was bad for me on both my flight to Wisconsin and my flight back because uh, uh, we didn't have a very good boarding position because my dumbass forgot to check us in. 
and I didn't pay any money for the uh, the early bird check in where they check you in. You know, you pay an extra thirty bucks or whatever it is, and they they the system automatically checks you in and gets you a better boarding position. I didn't pay that money, so instead, when we got to the airport, I talked to the girl at the counter and wanted to get uh, an upgraded boarding position, which of course was fifty dollars a piece. So a hundred dollars for the two of us. I paid that both ways, so I paid two hundred dollars extra for my uh, extra board for my upgraded boarding position and I got screwed on both of them and that pissed me off I I like to sit in the exit row uh, a couple of reasons one I'm a little bit on the tall side I got longer legs I like the extra leg room and number two I always think about in the sense of an emergency I feel like that I react under stress a lot better than a lot of people do and I would like to have some control over what happens in that exit row in the event of an actual emergency. Uh, I don't I don't trust someone else to open that window. I believe most people will just freak out and panic in any moment of stress. And so I like to be close to that exit for that reason. So on the first flight out, I, you know, I pay the extra $100 hoping that uh, my girl and I can get our exit row seats. And of course, we're positions a 15 and 16, whatever it was, something like that. And we're boarding the plane. And literally the two people right in front of us took the last two seats in the exit row. And I was so pissed because that's really all I cared about. That's, that's really the only reason that I wanted to pay that extra money. Uh, I, I got an aisle seat. Sure. I mean, that's a good thing. I suppose that's also something important to me as I like sitting in the aisle. I don't like, I don't like sitting in a middle seat. So, I mean, I guess that's, a positive, but to pay a hundred dollars just to get an aisle seat, uh, not the aisle seat that I wanted, was a little bit, a little bit frustrating. And then the same thing happened to me on the way out. I'm sorry, on the way back to Vegas, I paid a hundred dollars again. This time, I actually got A1 and A2, so we were the first two on that plane. You know, with the exception of the handicap pre-board stuff like that. But they're not allowed to sit in the exit rows, so I'm sitting there thinking this is awesome because. I am going to get the exit row seat that I wanted, and life will be good. So I'm walking on the plane. We go straight to those exit rows, and I'm looking at the exit rows, and I grab the row on the right side. Uh, We take the aisle seat and the middle seat right there, and I kind of sit down, and I look for a second, and I realize, well, there's not that much leg room here. And I'm looking around, and I'm realizing that I'm in the exit row, but... For whatever reason, the way the window is lined up to the aisle, there's no extra leg room in this exit row. And I look around at the other exit rows, and the exit row on the other side of the aisle is the one with the leg room because of, again, the position of that window. Well, by the time I realized that, people behind me had already grabbed that row. And so I'm sitting there like, son of a bitch, I ended up in the exit row, I was the first one on the plane, and I still didn't get the actual seat that I wanted. And it pissed me off because when you're boarding on Southwest, you know, those first couple spots that you pay for, you're looking and you're, you're trying to grab what you can soon because there's people behind you that are going to grab, that are going to grab seats too. And it's just a free for all. So if you sit down and then all of a sudden you realize the seat across the aisle is actually better, well, it's too late because somebody else already took it. And I'm just like, son of a bitch, that just sucks. I paid $200 for these upgraded seats, and I never got 
a seat that I actually wanted that was actually worth that money because I will pay that money for the seat that I want, but I never, I didn't get the seat that I wanted. And that's, what's just frustrating. I'd, I'd rather fly an airline that doesn't do the open seating where they assign, they actually assign the seat on the ticket. And I'd rather look online and say, okay, which ones do I want? This seat here is an extra $35. This is an extra $50, whatever. I'd rather look and pick the one that I want and know that that seat is reserved for me and not have to deal with the clusterfuck of people coming behind me trying to sneak their ass into a seat that I actually wanted. Oh man, it was so, it was so annoying. And it's, um, I don't, I don't know, maybe you have similar experiences. Maybe I'm getting, maybe I'm overreacting to a situation of stupidity. I don't know. Um, I like Southwest for a lot of reasons, but that open seating thing always gets me, and I'm just I'm just not a fan of the fact that I have to pay more for a better boarding position, and then I still don't really necessarily get the seat that I want. But it, I guess it's my own dumbass fault for grabbing the wrong side of the exit row. I, I've actually never noticed on a plane. I, I thought all the exit rows had extra leg room because the purpose is in an emergency, someone's going to have to walk through here to get out get out this window. So I, I figured that exit rows always have extra legroom, and it wasn't until I sat down and I sat there for a few minutes that I looked around and I was like, wait a second, this looks like a regular aisle. I don't have any any extra legroom. Looking at the window, like, am I really in an exit row? Sure enough, I am. I still got to go through the little exit row briefing where they come over and get the, I need a verbal yes from each of you that you're willing to help in, a, in an emergency. And of course, I look around the other people sitting in the exit row, and I'm like, "Well, that guy ain't gonna be able to open open this uh, open this emergency exit anyway." So that guy's gonna freak out at, at just minor turbulence. You know, it's funny when you take off and you kind of look around. And I don't get nervous flying. I don't like flying, but I don't I don't get nervous about it. I the reasons I don't like it are usually the claustrophobia, being crammed into the plane, things like that. That's why I don't like flying. But as far as turbulence, fear of crashing, you know, that's not really me. So it's funny when I'm sitting there and we're getting ready to take off and you kind of look around at some of the other people sitting there. Like I said, I like people watching. So you look around at some of the other people sitting and first thing first thing you notice is people that are nervous to fly. They're nervous about something going wrong. And it's funny when you see these people like kind of in a mild state of panic you know they're hyperventilating they're fidgeting a little bit they're just you could just tell that they're nervous and these are the people that are in the exit row it's like holy shit we haven't done anything yet nothing's happened and I'm supposed to believe that you're going to open this window you're going to open this emergency exit and help people get out if this plane goes down like in the Hudson River like uh uh in the movie Sully like that uh the where the guy, they hit the flock of birds going up and then they turn around and they end up crashing in the Hudson River because they can't make it back to the airport after the engines failed. It's just, it's crazy to me that that type of thing happens, but there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, I guess. Um, Yeah, that, by the way, that movie Sully, that kind of a little tangent here. Now I'm just, I feel like I'm just rambling that, but that movie Sully was a great movie. Tom Hanks in that movie. If you haven't seen it, go ahead and watch it. It's it's a great movie. It's based on I forget what year that was. I want to guess it was two thousand and nine. I don't have it in front of me, uh, but it was somewhere around there. And you know, the plane takes off, hits the flock of geese. Both engines fail, and they're only at like two thousand feet, so you can't make it. 
can't make a turn to get back to the airport and do an emergency landing at the airport. So captain puts it down in the Hudson River and miraculously every single person on board survived minor injuries only uh just a freaking miracle and and the movie is great because it actually talks about and it it shows you what happened after the crash with how this pilot and first officer were treated by the authorities that were investigating this and how they were accusing them of making the wrong decision and how they could have made it back to the airport and they needlessly endangered the lives of all 155 people on board and the captain and first officer were standing by what they said you know this is this was our only chance for survival that's why we did what we did and we would not have made it back to the airport and uh, one of my favorite lines in there and they're like well what about the simulations that you know what what math and calculations did you do what simulations did you run and the cat his response is there was no time for any of that i eyeballed it and it was just it's just it's a great line i eyeballed it why did i decide to land in the river because i eyeballed it and i determined we weren't going to make it and there was no time for those calculations and i just i love that line it's it's great great movie if you haven't seen it check it out it's it kind of shows you a side of the story that the media didn't really didn't really show you and uh, it makes you kind of think about the way the uh, the way the authorities investigated that and the criticisms that those pilots received after a very stressful moment in their lives and then the criticism that they faced for months after being judged on what they did in, I think he said, 208 seconds is how long we had to, how long this took, 208 seconds, and yet we're being judged on it. Our entire 40-year career is going to be judged based on those 208 seconds it's just it's crazy it's crazy and of course when we were flying to wisconsin my girlfriend and i was sitting there and i'm the dumbass sitting there right before we take off leaving vegas and i say boy we had just watched this movie and i look at her and i say boy i hope you don't hit a flock of geese on our way out of vegas and she kind of like slaps me and i'm just laughing like because i think it's funny and uh but obviously yeah that would be that would be devastating because the odds of and having another pilot successfully do that uh, water landing are very, very slim. Uh, but, you know, it, that's that's how it goes. All right, so today I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about our self-criticisms, all right? And in the context of being reunited or seeing people that uh, we used to know in our life. So this this started as a conversation with a friend of mine. You know, we were talking about uh, uh, like reunions and things like that. Um, class reunions, you know, you go back to see what your classmates are doing with their lives now and or, or you just reuniting with uh, old friends and being a little conscious or self-conscious of your life and what you've done with your life versus what these people have done with theirs, all right? So being self-critical when you see the progress that they've made in their life, how they've changed. You know, sometimes you, you're you surprised to see what this person did with their life or how that person is very successful in whatever career field or, or whatever. And, you, you, you know, you, you have a perception of... This is who I knew in high school. Now here we are 10 years, 20 years later, 
and I knew this person 20 years ago. This is what I thought that they would do or become, or this is the type of student they were in high school, you know, never showing up to class. So this is what I expected them to become. And then being proven wrong because their their lives changed, maybe their personalities evolved, they, they turned into something that you didn't really see coming. And, you know, sometimes that turns into a self-consciousness of, well, what did I do? Did I, what do people think of me? Did I become what they expected of me? Or am, am I a failure, you know? And it, it kind of, it causes your own self-identity to suffer a little bit. And I think this is especially true with people who suffer from something like borderline personality disorder, where they already struggle with their self-identity. You know, people with BPD, they tend to attach their identity and their personality to the identities and personalities that are close to them. So for example, if if I, if I have a friend that is into tennis, I'll just use that as an example, and he invites me to go play tennis, and then I go play tennis with him, and you know, I have a good time. I haven't swung a tennis racket in years. Maybe I'm not very good at it, but I, I had fun. And so then I leave, you know, we, we leave the tennis court, and then what do I do? I go to a sporting goods store and I buy an expensive tennis racket, and I look at uh, videos about improving my tennis swing, and maybe I even go as far as taking tennis lessons, things like that. And suddenly my life revolves around tennis because of this one experience. And uh, it, it's really coming from someone else's personality. It's not It's not that I had an inherent uh, interest in tennis. And matter of fact, if I haven't swung a tennis racket in years, or maybe never, uh, it's not something that interests me. It's not something that's a part of my personality. But as soon as I'm surrounded by people who play tennis, they include me in that, suddenly my personality adapts and takes on their personality and takes on their identity. And now the, suddenly that becomes my identity. And and over time, what happens is, you know, I've talked about before how people with BPD tend to uh, have a variety of evolving interests and they're not really consistent in their hobbies. You know, they, they take on a hobby, they go full force in this hobby or this interest. Like I said, spending money on the new tennis racket, finding out which tennis ball is the best tennis ball, getting clothes for tennis, uh, having the right shoes, all that stuff. And then that kind of wanes away because maybe a month later that uh, interest kind of subsides because I hang out with somebody who's a golfer. And now I go golfing with them. And I, again, I have fun, but I realize that my clubs are a little bit old and worn and not not very high quality brand. Maybe I don't have the best golf balls. Maybe I don't have the best tees. Maybe I don't have the best shoes. Uh, I don't have uh, I don't have pants to wear for golfing. You know, I only have jeans, so I can't golf in jeans. So I got to go buy a pair of pants that I can wear on a golf course. And the same thing happens. But tennis goes by the wayside. That's no longer important because now my friends are into golf. Now I'm being surrounded by golf, and I immerse myself into someone else's interest. So what I'm saying is. Someone with BPD that already has that self-identity uh, crisis to a degree, uh, an identity crisis, now you put them back with these people. Maybe they go back with this person who's a tennis lover 10 years later. So I, I, I get immersed in tennis. 
I love tennis, whatever. Now I go 10 years without seeing this person. And I think, oh yeah, this is this person's a tennis player. So let me get ready, let me up my game, be ready to go play tennis with this person. Uh, maybe I spend a week or two kind of refamiliarizing myself with the game of tennis before I meet him again. And then I go meet him and suddenly they don't like tennis anymore. Well, because my self-identity was based on their interest in tennis, now I'm kind of having my own self-identity crisis that, well, the only reason I like tennis is because I thought you liked it. Now you don't. So now what are we going to do? Oh, I play basketball now. Basketball? Well, shit, I didn't know you played basketball. I haven't played, I haven't played basketball in years, so how am I supposed to now compete with you when I, I thought I, I thought you were into tennis and very quickly it turns into this self-critical stage like oh my god what are people thinking of me now uh I if I can't play basketball what are they going to think of me I mean maybe I played basketball in high school but I didn't keep that skill set up so now what am I going to do and it, it turns in, like I said, when we, when we attach our identity to someone else's identity, it turns into uh, this very dangerous ground of a turbulent personality of interests, but also we endanger ourselves that we're going to become very self-aware, self-conscious, self-critical of our own interests and our own desires and our own personality and where we've gone in our lives because the same see I use the example of tennis and golf and basketball things like that but the same can be true of larger things or more important things like a career choice people with BPD tend to enter a career field that they were randomly excited about or randomly interested in because they met someone in that profession all right so you, you, you meet someone who's a teacher, or maybe your parents are teachers, and that's kind of what you've known. And, th- and this is what happened to me, all right? So I, I didn't really have an interest in teaching until I, I was getting ready to go to college, and I was trying to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life, and I realized that I was surrounded by teachers. Both my parents are teachers. I got an older sister who's a teacher, aunts and uncles, cousins. I got lots and lots of people in my family who are teachers, So if I couldn't find my own self-identity and my own passion for something, I I turned my passion into what was around me and other people that were close to me. So I went to school to be a teacher. Guess what? If I'm in school to be a teacher, I'm around a lot of other people that also want to be teachers. We're all taking the same classes. We're all doing the same uh, student teaching experiences, clinical experience, research experiences, uh, studying child development, adolescent development, all that stuff. We're all doing the same thing. So that interest kind of builds a little bit and because I'm, I'm, again, surrounded by people with that identity. But then I reach the end of it, the end of the degree, and I start to realize maybe this isn't really what I want to do. I start doing student teaching and I'm like, you know what? I don't know if this is what I want to do. And then you kind of jump to something else and based on, again, based on who else is surrounding you. So when you have these 10-year class reunions and it starts to get, it starts to get hairy with what you expect 
of other people and then the self-consciousness of what you expect out of yourself. So how do we get around this? What what should we do now that we're aware that uh, this happens? Because if you have BPD, if you have some type of personality disorder or or even just if you just know that you're the type that your interests are based on or centered on other people in your life so what do you what do you do i would suggest the first step is to realize that if this is who you are if this is what you do look at i want you to take a piece of paper and draw out some of your interests some of your hobbies some of your interests what do you like to do for fun. Is it golf? Is it tennis? Is it basketball? Is it photography? Is it hiking? Whatever. And then I want you to think about in that list, I want you to leave space between each one. So write down hiking, then leave five or six lines blank, then write down tennis, leave five or six lines blank, whatever. And I want you to go through that list. And then I want you to add like little bullet points underneath each one for who you know in life that also enjoys those things. All right, so, well, I enjoy hiking, and then I do it with my wife, so write down hiking, and then, you know, my wife, all right? And once you've done that, I want you to, the next thing I want you to do is think about what it is about each of those things that makes you enjoy it, and here's the kicker, could you do that, or could you enjoy that by yourself? So let me give you an example. Personally, I say... When people ask me what I like to do, hiking is one of the things that I I tell them. I tell them that I enjoy hiking, okay? But when I think about hiking, and I think about how many times I've gone hiking by myself, I could tell you what that number is. It's very simple. Zero. Zero. Never done it. I've never once been hiking by myself. Every time I go hiking, it's with other people. So does that mean I don't really like hiking? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is my interest in hiking comes from other people's interest in hiking. Because if I had a true interest in hiking, I would more than likely do it on my own at some point or another. If my interest is basketball, basketball is a team sport, so you might say, well, you have to do that by yourself. Not true. You can go out on a basketball court, do some dribbling, do some free throws, do some random shooting, practice layups, whatever. You can do all those things on your own if you have an interest in basketball. But if your interest is is rooted in the fact that other people around you are interested in it, uh, then it's it's probably not inherently your interest. So you have this list of all your interests and hobbies and things. What I want you to do is put a little asterisk next to some of the ones that have no requirement of doing it with other people. So if you enjoy golfing and you're fine going golfing on your own, taking golf lessons, do, doing going to the driving range by yourself, if you're fine doing golf things by yourself and you have been consistently for a period of time, then that's probably something that is a true interest for your personality. But if you're having a hard time finding things or coming up with things that are truly interesting to you that you do by yourself, then maybe it's maybe it's not something that uh, maybe it's maybe it's something that you're subscribing to because of other people close to you in life. 
And once you become aware of that type of thing, once you become aware of the fact that I tend to, uh, I tend to be drawn towards other people's hobbies and interests, then you have to you have to search inside yourself and really find one or two things that you enjoy doing by yourself. For me, one of the big things is this podcast. I don't do this podcast with anybody else. I try to get other people to do it, uh, to be guests on this show. But what I'm what I'm finding is a lot of the people that are close to me in life. Uh, well, number one, a lot of the people that are that are close to me in life don't know a lot about me in terms of borderline personality disorder and my interest in mental health and and self help and things like that. So I I don't I don't just put that out in the open for people. Uh, but the people that do know that about me, that I've invited to be a part of this podcast or whatever, a lot of them say that they they don't really want to because they're too they're too self conscious of different things, and and that's that's interesting. That's interesting to think about, I think, because uh, in a podcast setting like this, you know, I'm I'm sitting in a room by myself right now, talking into a microphone, talking into my computer, and of course my computer's making noise. I just got a little alert on there, but I'm by myself. This is something that I do by myself. I plan out what I want to talk about. I make notes about little things that happen to me. I make notes about conversations that I have, and I try to incorporate that into an episode of Third Degree Mind. But that's something that I do entirely on my own. So that's something that is is a key interest for me that I want to keep going because it's something that I do for myself. And I told you that a long time ago when I first started this podcast that I wasn't doing it for the purpose of gaining a listening audience. In fact, I never even imagined that I would gain an, a listening audience like 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 I have. I do it for myself because it helps me process what's going on in my mind and what's going on with my thoughts and emotions to talk about it. They talk about uh, going to counseling and therapy and talking to someone, talking to a shrink, all that stuff. But you know what? I, I found that I don't like talking to someone. I would rather just talk. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm just I'm just talking. You know, I have a rough idea of what I want to talk about, but for the most part, you know, most of these episodes are just are just ramblings. Which is why honestly, it's it's uh it's impressive to me that uh, I've gained a little bit of a listening audience, you know. I have I have all you guys willing to download these podcasts and listen to really just my ramblings and I I, I appreciate all you guys for that, but I always want I always want to reiterate that I, I honestly do this podcast and I started it for the purpose of being able to uh, uh, express my own thoughts and my own feelings and help organize my own thoughts and feelings. And I don't do it because I'm trying to be some internet sensation with 10 million podcast downloads. I don't I don't care about those numbers, you know. Uh, so with your hobbies and interests, it's so important to find things that you like yourself. And that's that's something that I'm 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 positive that I've talked about on here before because it's it's a very important aspect to self-identity. And and a lack of self-identity is what leads to uh, all kinds of other a slew of mental health problems. You 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 end up in depression, you end up in a world of addiction, uh 
alcoholism, things like that, drug addiction, different things that try to numb the pain because when you don't have a self-identity, it's painful. When you can't find your self-identity, it's painful. When you can't figure out who you are. Most people that are suicidal or depressed, one of the key issues that's a common theme among people in that group, the key theme is a a lack of self-confidence, a lack of self-identity, a lack of self-worth. You have to develop yourself. It's fine to have interests that other people share. In fact, uh, hobbies tend to be more fun if you find people that match the same hobbies and you can do it with them. But the key, like for my hiking hobby, I I, I consider hiking a hobby, but I, I always realize that I can live without hiking. If I didn't know anybody that liked hiking, I probably would never do it. And the simple way that I know that is the fact that I never have done it by myself. So I don't put that on the top of my list of interests. Photography is one that I I will do with people, but I will also do by myself. I enjoy photography. And I, uh, I have enjoyed that enough that I believe that's something that's important to my own personality because I do it and I'm willing to do it by myself. I'm willing to sit down on a computer and do some Photoshopping, do some editing, come up with landscapes that I want to go photograph, come up with, uh, if I do night photography, I'm looking at the stars and stuff like that, and I'm looking at what phase the moon is in, different times of the year, things like that. And I do that by myself because I enjoy it. If someone wants to come with me and someone wants to be a part of that, I'm all for that. But I'm more than willing to do that by myself because that is something that's important to me. So what I want to challenge you to do is make that list of those interests Find some things that are important to you that you are willing to do by yourself because I think that's what is going to help you see what uh, what defines you as a person. What do you enjoy doing enough that you can do by yourself? And if you can't find anything, I think the awareness is is key there because that's how... Once you're aware of that, you can start paying more attention to yourself because you're going to find something. You're going to find something. You probably just are having a hard time thinking of what exactly it is. But there's something that you like doing by yourself. I I guarantee it. Guarantee it. So do that. And I am going to talk to you again real soon. Uh, Hopefully in the next week. My goal would be, let's see, today is 28th of October. Halloween's coming up. I have a Halloween party that I'm going to be going to. Actually, a couple Halloween parties that uh, I'm going to be going to with uh, Kiddo. Uh, she's dressing up as a character called Cat Noir. Never, never heard of that character. I don't know where she, where she got it from, but I googled it and found it. it's N O N O I R. It's from some TV show or something. It's a character that she's very adamant about being. So one of my friends is uh, sewing her up a little costume there that she can wear for Halloween so she can be Cat Noir. So we're, we're excited about that. I hope you guys have a good Halloween. And my goal is uh, I'm going to be back to talk to you again real soon within the next couple of days. This one was kind of a, a rambling episode. I didn't really plan a whole lot of what I was going to discuss here. But uh, I, I, as always, I hope you enjoy listening and Follow us on Facebook if you're not already. Look us up there, Third Degree Mind. Hit that like button, hit that follow button, whatever. Send me a message there on Third Degree Mind Facebook page if uh, if you need to get in touch with me. 
If not, I hope all is well, and I will talk to you again real soon within the next week or so. Thank you so much for being here, and you have a great day. There will be days when you're falling down. There will be days when you're inside out. There will be days when you fall apart. Someone else will break your heart. I'm never gonna hold you back. I'm always gonna have your back. So try to remember that. I hope you're happy. I hope you're good. I hope you get what you wish for. And you're well understood. And now I'm standing here looking at you. I'm wondering what the hell you're gonna do with those Dr. Pepper eyes and your bubblegum hair. Yeah, I'm standing right here. I remember how.
Hey, it's Jay, creator and host of Third Degree Mind Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I wanted to close really quick by reminding you that Third Degree Mind is produced primarily for entertainment purposes and is not intended to treat or diagnose any mental illness and is not intended to replace clinical psychiatry. I am not a licensed therapist or physician, so if you feel that you need mental health treatment, please always seek that appropriate care in your area. If you're feeling actively suicidal, please call 911 or take yourself to an emergency room. If you're in the U.S., you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255 or contact them using their online chat service at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. And once again, they are available 24-7.